You are listening to Episode 8 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 15. A Warning While the tea kettle warmed, Tanith took her bucket to the well. As she stepped out the front door, she saw Frank sitting on the ground in front of his hut across the way. He was whittling on a stick, and judging from the pile of slivers around him, he'd been at it quite a while. He smiled when he saw her and gave a jaunty salute with the tip of the blade. She waved back and continued on to the well. By the time she'd gotten there, Frank and Riley had fallen in beside her, man on one side, boy on the other. She was amused and a bit taken aback by the attention. "'Good afternoon, Mum.' Frank's weather-creased face carried a gentle smile around the eyes. "'Hello, Frank.' She turned to the boy. "'And hello, Riley. Recovered from our gathering?' He looked up at her. "'Yes, um, actually, twas fun. Would have been funner if we could have cut some,' he shrugged. "'But twas fun learning about the different mints. Ma says I can have some mint tea tonight with dinner.' Frank's mouth twitched in a smile. "'You mind what Mother Fairport tells you, boy? She's a rare one.' Tanith considered the ravens and wondered if Frank knew the half of it, but she nodded to him in acknowledgment of the compliment. Riley eyed the bucket in her hand. "'What you doing now?' "'Fetching some water, and I'll need to refill my wood box, too.' She looked down at him. "'You don't know of any strong young man who might help a poor old woman out, do you, Riley?' Frank snorted in what sounded suspiciously like a suppressed laugh, and she shot him a wounded look. "'What, you don't think I'm a poor old woman?' He glanced at her out of the corner of his eye. Mom, you're the least poor old woman I've ever seen in my life. His amused tone carried an undercurrent of admiration that Tanith found both unexpected and warming. Do I need to hobble more? She teased him playfully. Perhaps I need to be bent over a bit? He turned to her with a grin. Well, Mom, if you think it needful, but I'm not sure anybody over the age of twelve would believe it. He leaned forward and eyed Riley as they walked. The boy saw him looking and, not quite following the conversation, announced, I'm going to be loving this winter. The two adults were careful not to laugh. At the pump, Tanith put her bucket under the spigot and Riley helped Frank work the long lever to fill it. In a few moments, the splashing water overflowed the rim with a cheerful slosh. She reached for the bale, but Frank's strong hand was there before hers and he hefted the heavy bucket easily. I'll get that for you, Mum. He smiled and arched an eyebrow. Wouldn't want a poor old woman to hurt herself lugging water back from the well. Thank you, Frank, most kind. She smiled and bent over in a mock hobble, shuffling her feet through the grass. Riley eyed them both with a skeptical look in his eye, but offered no commentary. Frank laughed and started out for her hut at a brisk pace, the bucket swinging easily at the end of his arm. She straightened and picked up her stride to catch up with him. Riley's short legs meant he practically had to run to keep up. At the hut, she swung the door open and Frank took the bucket in, placed it near the hearth, and slipped the cover on it. Thank you, kind sir. It's most appreciated. He smiled and headed for the door again. You're most welcome, Mum. Any time. She followed him out onto the grass and looked at the shadows beginning to reach across the village. The peeled sticks marking the corners of the future inn's location showed up whitely in the gathering dusk. Will you dig another well, do you think? She asked it idly, the question popping out of her mouth without thought. He looked to where she was looking and caught the meaning at once. His expression turned thoughtful, and she could see him measuring the distance from the pump to where the inn would go. That's a good question, Mum. He considered the location of the inn and then turned back to look at the well. He snorted. Much work as digging a second well would be and getting another pump working might be easier to just take down those two houses and put the inn over the well. 
She turned to look at the area in question and then at the markings on the ground. He was right. There were only two huts near enough to matter. Where would Sadie and Megan go? You'd have to build new huts for them. There's four or five standing empty now, Mom. When we built them, we built enough for twenty families. We're down to less than twelve now, and some of the single boys have moved into individual houses. They really should be doubling or even tripling up just to save the fuel in the winter. It takes a lot less wood to heat one house than it does three. Would they mind moving, do you think? Could ask, but I suspect it won't matter to them. He nodded his head to indicate the various houses. In case you haven't noticed, they're all the same. Only difference is where they sit. There's a couple of nice private spots on the far side of the village might suit Sadie and Thomas better anyway. They stood there long enough that Riley got sidetracked and ran off on some important boyish business. As he scampered off, Frank spoke softly. You haven't seen anybody else hanging around, have you, Mum? She shook her head and glanced at him. Have you? He shook his head and gave her a sideways look. We should tell Thomas and William about it. She nodded her agreement. Right now, I want my tea. The water should be hot. She looked at him shyly. Can I offer you a cup? He smiled, but didn't look at her. Actually, Mom, that sounds real good, but I've got some things need seeing to, so maybe another time. She felt a pang of letdown, but nodded. Of course. Kettle's always on. The old formulas of housekeeping were coming back to her. None of the teachers she'd had over the past twenty winters stood much on ceremony, but the rituals of hospitality were well ingrained. With a nod of his head, he strode off in the direction of the barn. She watched him go for a moment before turning back to her hut. The water was probably hot and she was ready for a cup. She would also have to talk with William and Thomas soon, but still had no clear insight into what it was the riders wanted. She splashed a little hot water into her teapot to christen it, but paused as she reached for her rapidly dwindling cache of black tea. She had no way to get more, and decided to husband what she had for the moment. She rummaged in her pack and found a small parcel of crushed, dried rose hips and smiled. This will do. She crumbled a couple of the hips into her pot and pushed it a bit closer to the fire to steep. It would take a little longer to steep than black, but the taste was one she enjoyed. She remembered the large rugosa in the forest and made a mental note to harvest as many of the rose hips as she could. The crunch of wheel on gravel announced William's return about the time she was finishing her tea, but she didn't hurry out. He'd need to deal with Bester, and she suspected that Frank would meet him in the barn, fill him in on the details. She wasn't sure what she could say about the Raven episode. The less she needed to talk about it, the happier she'd be. She filled in the time by sorting out the chestnuts, groundnuts, and apples from where she'd dumped her cleaner's bag earlier in the day. She left them in neat piles on the hearthstone and remembered that she needed some baskets to store things in. She reckoned William had had time to care for the ox and get the highlights from Frank, so she grabbed her staff and hat and headed up to the barn. With luck, she'd be able to duck in and duck out again. She opened the door and stepped out, just as Frank, with William and Thomas in tow, rounded the corner from the barn. Frank pushed a barrel of firewood in front of him, and the other two waved as she stepped into view. She waved back and waited. As they approached, Frank walked the barrow right up to the door, and the three men proceeded to fill her wood box from the barrow in next to no time at all. Thomas even hung a pair of dressed gamecocks on the hook beside her door to season. He smiled shyly and nodded his head. Sadie thought you might like these, Mum. Thank you, Thomas, and thanks, Sadie, for thinking of me. She turned to include them all in her gaze. And thank all of you for the wood delivery. I was going to need some soon. William smiled at her. Anytime you get low, Mum, you let one of us know. We'll see to it you have wood. Frank grinned at her and winked conspiratorially but said nothing. 
William went on. Frank here tells me you saw one of those boyos in the wood this morning. Yes, I did. I thought I saw somebody in the edge of the wood, so I went up to the barn and fetched Frank. He went with me while we looked it over. You mind going with us while we look the place over for ourselves, before it gets any darker? Not at all. She started out across the village, making a beeline directly toward the large oak. The three men fell in behind her, and they walked in silence. When they got to the edge of the woods, Tana stopped and pointed with the head of her staff. He was in there, just after dawn, and watching the village. Thomas gave her a long, sideways look before he slipped almost noiselessly through the low brush and into the woods beyond. William turned to look back at the village, surveying the scope of the view. Frank spoke into the growing silence. I figure they must have sent one fellow up to the quarry to see what we were doing up there. Left another here to keep an eye on the home fires. William nodded. Good assumption. Even if they didn't, we're probably better off thinking they did. He finished his survey of the village and shook his head. The question is, what do they want? Frank shrugged. That's the question, isn't it? He nodded to Tanith. If Mother Fairport hadn't seen it, we wouldn't have known. As it is, we know, but we don't know what to do about it because we don't know what they want. From the darkness under the trees, Thomas's voice seemed eerily unattached to any body. We're about to find out, I think, as riders coming up the pike. They stood silently for a moment, then heard what Thomas's ears had already picked out, hoofbeats on the hard-panned surface of the road, not moving fast, but more than one set. Four familiar shapes rode into view and wheeled into the track of the village. With a grunt, William led them across the sward to meet them before they got too close. The sun wasn't quite down, and spears of light worked across the village, through the trees and between the huts. The leader of the small band, the dapper fellow, reined in his horse so that one of the transient bands of light illuminated him dramatically. Tanith almost snickered when he turned his body and practically posed in the beam of the setting sun. William took a couple more steps and halted a few feet from the riders. He snorted and spit on the ground. Hello, Andy. Haven't seen you in a while. The leader flinched, losing his composure for a moment and peering out of the brilliant light into the dimmer evening all around him. Who's that? William stepped into the next band of brightness, casting himself in clear evening sun. You don't recognize me, Andy. I'm hurt. William's voice sounded anything but hurt. The leader screwed up his face in a frown, trying to remember. He started to shake his head, but then the penny dropped and he frowned. Pound me, but if it isn't William Mapleton. Sakes alive. The leader's face was transformed by a smile of false camaraderie. I had no idea this was where you were living now, William. He looked around at his men. Did you boys know? They grinned without much humor and shook their heads, making a big show of it. Andy turned back to William and flashed his coattails back in a flurry of red satin lining, but exposing the pommel of his sword and leaning forward on the bow of his saddle. This is a right pretty place you have here, William. He smiled with his teeth. Be a right shame should anything happen to it. Don't even think it, Birchwood. William fairly spat the name. Why, William? The man sat back on his horse. Is that any way to be? I come here to offer you and yours a perfectly legal business arrangement. There's no need to be like that. You came in here yesterday and rousted out my wife and my friends. You've had your boyo spying on us today. He spat again. I know your perfectly legal business arrangement, and I want no part of it. Andy shook his head with a sigh and several tisk-tisks. You really should control that temper, William. You got that from your father, I know, and it really doesn't become you. He lowered his voice and leaned forward to whisper. 
And it really would be tragic if something were to happen to this lovely little hideaway in the woods now, wouldn't it? Nothing's going to happen, Birchwood. William stood his ground calmly, but Tanith could see his left fist clench and the muscles in his back tense from where she stood behind him. Now how can you say that, William? Why, just any kind of troublemaker could ride down the pike and decide that this delightful little hamlet would make a wonderful place to live. Now what would you say to that? Anybody's welcome to live here, so long as they do their share, tend their business, and respect the neighbors, Birchwood. Birchwood made a show of being aghast. You can't mean that, William. Certainly you'd not let murdering scum live next to your lovely wife and your two gorgeous children. I didn't say your kind was welcome. I said folks was willing to do their share, tend their business, and respect the neighbors. I know you and your boyos there, and you're not that kind. William, you wound me. I'm cut to the quick. You do me such disservice, and here I am just trying to help you hold on to what's yours. He sighed. But I can see I've come at a bad time. End of the day and all. You must be tired after the day you've had cutting wood miles away in the forest. He gathered his reins in one immaculately gloved hand. I'll just let you think about it for a bit. The boys and I will come back in a couple of days, and you can tell me how much you think it's worth not to have trouble with strangers. He turned his horse and nodded to his men. The troop of them rode down the lane and turned south onto the pike. William stood still until the sound of their horses faded into the distance. Then he turned to the group arrayed behind him. We'll need to keep watch. Chapter 16. On Guard Frank volunteered for the first watch. I don't have much to do tomorrow. He looked at Thomas. Wake up at midnight? Thomas shook his head. I'll be up with you. We'll need to do this in pairs. William nodded his agreement. Wake me at midnight. I'll get one of Jakey's boys to sit up with me. Frank agreed with a nod of his head. They're just wrapping up now at the quarry. Should be able to finish loading with one less hand. But what about the days? William pursed his lips. We'll need to keep a closer eye on the kids. Be just like him to grab one of them. He sighed. I thought we were shut of him once and for all. Tanith looked from face to face. Who is he? His name is Andrew Birchwood. Dandy Andy, they call him. Six or seven winters back, he and his boyos were running a protection racket on the docks. They were the muscle along with a half dozen others. William's gaze turned inward. Tanith could see him pulling the knowledge out from another place and another time. They had a tidy little racket going, beating up women and children when the menfolk were at work unless they paid protection to him. Dandy Andy? Frank asked. That boyo was Dandy Andy? William nodded. When Father got wind of it, he and several of the shipfitters paid a visit to Dandy Andy and convinced him to take his operation elsewhere. Frank found. I remember hearing something about that. Why didn't they just call a king's own? not against the law. Frank looked at the younger man. How could that be? Father went to the magistrate, was told if they arrested Dandy Andy and his crew, they'd have to arrest all the insurers who were underwriting the voyages. Frank spat. Magistrates. William just shrugged. He could see the point a bit. Only point would be as if the insurers were sinking the ships on purpose if anybody didn't buy insurance. William looked at him coldly but made no comment. Frank saw the look, and his mouth made a soundless oh. William continued. Afterwards, Andy and the boys left town. Rumor was they went down to Easton and tried their little insurance scheme down there. Thomas shrugged. 
They're still selling insurance. Tanith got William's eye. You think they'll try something here? It wasn't a question. William nodded slowly. Frank scrubbed the back of his neck with a hand. Why don't we just... He paused and looked at Tanith out of the corner of his eye. Deal with him. William looked at the older man. Pay him? William barked a laugh. He'll want more than we can give, and if he guesses too low at first, he'll keep up on the bill until it is. Frank shook his head. No, why don't we just remove the problem? William sighed and looked at the ground. We may have to, but I hate the idea of just killing him out of hand. Thomas grinned in the gathering gloom. Threatening us like that isn't exactly being neighborly. You think he's going to find redemption overnight? William shook his head. No, I think he's going to cause just as much havoc as he can. But if we don't catch him in the act, then we're no better than they are. Frank grunted his agreement. But we'd be alive. Can't say as he'd give us the same chances. William nodded. I know, but he's not done anything yet. Maybe he won't. Thomas snorted. You don't believe that. William shook his head. No, I don't, but I'm not going to ambush him on the road either. Frank scuffed the grass. He probably won't have to. He'll come to us. William's expression turned wolfish. If he does, that's a different matter. The gathering dusk started closing around them, and William turned to Tanith. You're welcome to bed down at our hearth, Mom. Staying on your own might make for an uneasy night. Tanith thought about it, but dodged an answer. Let's get some dinner in us, and everybody will need to know what's going on. Frank agreed. Jakey's boys should bunk up together, too. We don't want to leave Birchwood any easy targets. William nodded to Thomas. Let's go tell Amber and Sadie, and then we can split up and go around the village and let people know. Tanith snorted. I got a better idea. She shot a look at Frank that had a bit of mischief in it. Is it ready? He caught her meaning and nodded. Yes, Mum, it is. No time like the present. Let's see how it works. She marched off into the gathering dusk with Frank right beside her. Thomas and William glanced at each other and scrambled to keep up. They headed for the back of Megan and Harry's hut, and Tana spoke up loudly as she rounded the corner. We need to ring the bell, Megan. Don't be startled. Frank looked at her. That was considerate. How would you like it if somebody started banging on your house without warning? He chuckled. Not very much. The iron hoop was hanging nicely from the eaves in the back of the hut, and the poker was stuck in the ground right under it. Before Tanith could pull it out of the ground, Megan and Harry came out the back door of their house, spilling warm firelight into the dusk. What's going on? Harry looked at the ring curiously. Alarm bell. Tanith was matter-of-fact. We need to see how well it works, and there's news everybody should have. She pulled the poker out of the ground, with an impish grin, handed it to Frank. It's your turn. He took it, and she stepped well back while Thomas, William, and the others looked on curiously. He drew back his arm. You might want to cover your ears. Tanith took him at his word and did so, but the others were slow to respond. He struck. Not once, but again and again. After about five or six good blows, people started showing up. The horrendous clangor echoed in the quiet of the dusky evening, and Frank grinned like a madman. The town soon assembled and gathered around the back door. William stepped into the open so everybody could at least see his shape in the dim light. Sorry about the noise, but we did need to test the alarm. If there's trouble here, ring it. Grab the poker and pound until somebody comes to help. Jakey had a hank of bread in his hand and a napkin tucked in his shirt. Do we have a reason for this, William? He waved the bread in a circular motion, indicating the gathering and the bell. He didn't sound particularly pleased. Yes. That one word silenced the still-muttering crowd. 
The riders who were here yesterday just paid us another little visit. They've actually been visiting all along. They may still be visiting, for all we know. That brought anxious looks around at the darkened wood. They're trying to strong-arm us into a protection scheme. In return for not beating us up, they'll take money. Jakey snorted. How much money? We don't know yet, but it'll be more than we can afford, and we'll have to keep paying them every time they come calling. There was some grumbling from the group, but nobody else had a comment, so William continued. We'll need people who are living alone in the houses to double up, at least for now. They're bullies and cowards, so they'll only pick on the easiest and least likely to hit back. That means we have to be doubly careful with the children and keep a closer eye on them for a while. An anxious-sounding woman's voice came out of the dusk. How long, William? Honestly, I don't know. Sooner or later, they'll get bored and move on to an easier target if we're just careful and make it too difficult for them to hurt us. Tanith had her doubts, and from the look on Frank's face, she thought he might have a few too, but neither of them spoke. William raised his voice one last time. We'll be standing watches at night. We'll need pairs who are willing to stay up and keep an eye open. We've got one more day before the lorry wagon is loaded up and heading for Overton. Frank will be taking the watch tonight, and I'm hoping I can count on the quarrymen to help out once the quarry gets shut down for the winter. Well, we usually put a little aside for spring, William. You know that. Jakey objected again. I know, Jakey, and perhaps we can later. Right now the village is being threatened. If there's no village, the quarry won't mean much. Jakey nodded his head and not another bite off the bread in his hand. Aye, I'll give you that. Thanks, everyone. We should be all right. Just keep an eye open and don't get separated. The crowd dispersed after that. Megan and Harry shooed their small brood into the hut, but stood outside until the last of the villagers had wandered back to their houses. Harry spoke softly. You really think this is going to turn out well, William? I don't know, Harry. We've run them off once when they didn't expect any problem, and we weren't prepared for it either. With our heads up and points out, it'll be harder for them to pull anything. The concern on Harry's face was evident even in the scant light from the fire inside his hut. Well, count me in on the guard detail. We'll have the last of the barrels loaded tomorrow around midday, I'd guess. And we'll all be available, so long as Jakey doesn't get too pushy. William smiled encouragingly and clapped the man on the shoulder. Thanks, Harry. Harry and Megan went down the stairs and with a little wave closed the door. Amber and William headed for their house. Amber paused and turned to Tanith. You're coming to stay with us, Mom. No question, all right? Of course, Amber. I'll just go get my bedroll. Frank spoke up and forestalled William's objection. I'll go with her so she's not alone in the dark. William nodded, his face just a pale blur in the darkness. Thank you. And you come back with her and have some dinner too, huh? Amber's got a stew on the fire that's big enough to feed the village. The two of them wandered off, leaving Frank and Tanith to make their way to fetch Tanith's meager belongings. Seems like living on the road is an advantage, eh? She looked up at him. Packing is easy and I can carry everything on my back. His chuckle rumbled in his chest, but he offered no comment, just kept scanning the darkness. They won't try anything yet. Tanith's voice was confident in the darkness. Now how do you figure that, Mom? It's too soon. We're alert and warned. They'll wait until things quiet down. His voice sounded amused. You have a lot of experience with this kind of thing, Mom? Yes. Her voice carried no amusement whatsoever. Thomas's voice came out of the darkness behind them. She's right, Frank. Just before dawn, hunter's time. Moon will be down, sun won't be up, we'll all be asleep. As if on cue, the silvery, nearly full harvest moon peeked over the trees on the other side of the pike. Its glow had been lighting the sky since sundown, but the tall spruces and pines on the far side of the road kept it from shining directly on the village. 
Thomas stepped up to her other side and nodded to Frank, who nodded back. Mom? Thomas's voice was quiet and deferential. Can I ask you something? She glanced at him before nodding. Of course, Thomas. What is it? How did you see that man? The one in the woods this morning. Her heart skipped once. She wasn't ready to share that story in its entirety yet, but she also didn't want to lie. I wasn't sure I had. That's why I asked Frank to come with me to look. But what did you see that made you think there was somebody there, Mum? I don't know exactly. She was telling the truth, but she knew she was not being exactly forthright either. He accepted her response, but she could tell he didn't believe her entirely. Well, Mum, if you ever think you see something like that again, make sure you get one of us, or all of us. He was looking at her intently. Of course, Thomas. Thank you, Mum. He sounded relieved, and she couldn't imagine why. She certainly didn't feel relieved. At her door they paused, and by some unspoken agreement took up station on either side of it. We'll wait for you here, Mum. Give you a chance to pack your things in private. Frank seemed almost embarrassed. Thank you, Frank. I won't be but a moment. She slipped into the hut and quickly rolled up her bedding, tossed a few loose items onto the top of her pack, and gathered her small collection of cooking gear. She didn't think she'd need it, but didn't want to leave anything behind, just in case. She stopped inside the door and took one last look around the dim interior to see if there was anything she'd missed. Outside, she heard the two men talking. She didn't see anything, Frank. She couldn't have. Frank's response was a rumbling question. Whoever was there was laying behind the roots of the trees and looking through the weeds. Across the village, into the darkness of the woods, picking out a face in the bushes. Thomas's voice was low and insistent. I don't know what magic she used, but I'm glad she's on our side. She froze. Magic? Preposterous. Her breath stopped in her lungs while her heart seemed to beat twice as fast. No. Impossible. Frank's rumble in return was unintelligible in detail, but clearly unconvinced in tone. I don't either, but I'm telling you. She coughed and scuffed her feet as if just coming up to the door, and exited the small house. Thank you both. That was very considerate. Frank smiled. Our pleasure, Mum. She closed and secured the door, conscious of Thomas's intense gaze. She didn't sigh, but she wanted to. The whole idea was absurd. Was he watching to see if she'd cast a spell or something? But the man had been in the undergrowth. Tanith had apparently seen him in a dream through the eyes of a raven. The thought made her momentarily dizzy as she recalled the dream vision being overlaid on the reality of the crushed seedling in the forest. Frank's strong hand caught her arm to steady her. You all right, Mom? Yes, thank you. A moment of dizziness. She let it rest and turned up to smile at him and then over at Thomas. Shall we? They escorted her carefully, alert to any stumble. For all of her joking earlier in the day, she felt old, slightly frail, and being swept along by forces she understood too well, Dandy Andy and his bully boys, and by forces she wasn't even sure she could comprehend as the all-mother's natural progression would soon take her monthly habit from her and leave her an old woman in reality, not just in name. In the forest an owl called, and the night winds began playing in the treetops, skittering leaf against leaf in the silver light of the moon. Chapter 17 Winter Plans In spite of the tension, the night passed uneventfully. Tanith spread her bedroll against the wall farthest from the hearth, and after a hurried dinner, 
Everyone took to their blankets. Even the children settled quickly, perhaps because the excitement of having a guest was overshadowed by parental solemnity and in going to bed early themselves to allow William to get some sleep before going on watch at midnight. The gray light of morning brought a pale rain with it, and the tension became layered in the smell of wet wool. The cold and damp did nothing to help the situation. The quarrymen headed up the track, and Sadie and Amber got their heads together to move all the children into the Mableton house for the morning, while the menfolk slept at the Hawthorns. The morning passed slowly, but life in the village went on. Children and animals needed caring for. The work of the day was merely complicated by being confined. The additional tension of watching for danger from outside was overridden by managing restive children. More than once, Tanith saw either Sadie or Amber looking out the front door at the soggy landscape and the peeled sticks marking the corners of their future inn. Tanith had to admit that the tiny cottages had a certain disadvantage over a large common room with a roaring hearth. As small as they were, Cozy was soon replaced by Cramped, and Tanith longed for the quiet solitude of the road, even in the rain. Still, she had to admit as she sat on her bedroll and sipped her tea, there was much to be thankful for. There had been no dreams of ravens to trouble her, and there had been no attack. Of course, each of these carried an element of anxiety as well, but she didn't let herself dwell on those. At mid-morning, while Sadie and Amber were working on bread, Frank and Thomas came in from the barn, their clothing damp and redolent of animal. They dried themselves in front of the hearth, and Amber plied them with hot tea. The conversation soon turned to the coming trip to Overton. "'Have you given any thought to who you're going to take with you this trip, Frank?' Amber frowned in concentration as she kneaded down the large ball of bread dough. He seemed surprised by the question. "'Take with me. Why would I take anybody with me?' Sadie looked at him with a certain air of disbelief. "'Well, Dandy Andy and his boyos aren't exactly going to miss the fact that a large, slow-moving lorry wagon loaded with clay is leaving the compound now, are they?' Well, I thought of that, but why would they bother it? If they interrupt the clay, they can't get paid. What if they steal it and sell it themselves, along with the horses and the wagon? Frank blanched, and Thomas gave him a short glance out of the corner of his eye. Didn't think of that one, did you? Frank shook his head. No, I was thinking they'd want us to get the money and bring it back to them. He looked chagrined. Never occurred to me they'd cut out the middleman. Amber tisked him. Well, think of it, foolish man. She smiled to take the sting out. We can't afford to lose you. Me or the clay? He teased her back. She rolled her bread dough into a ball and covered it with a bit of toweling to rise again. You. The clay, even the horses and wagon, we can replace. She shook a finger at him. You, you old coot, are not replaceable. He smiled and looked into his mug in embarrassment. Thomas stirred and spoke up. Jakey can send a couple of the boys with you, and he's not going to bother a group of men. He glanced uneasily around the hut full of women and children. It's not his style. His words fell awkwardly. Sadie looked at her husband curiously. Do you know him? He shook his head. No, but I know the type. Tana spoke up from her corner. I agree. They'll not risk getting hurt themselves when they can hit at things that won't hit back. Two of the smaller children started to spat over a doll, and the resultant noise and commotion drowned out further conversation on the subject. Tanith could see that Frank was thinking about the trip. When the two children had been mollified and quieted by passing out slices of buttered bread, the talk returned to the pending trip. Amber turned to Frank. When are you leaving? I don't have my list finished yet. Frank looked up. I was hoping to leave in the morning. A lot will depend on who will go with me, if anybody. Amber grinned at him. 
Somebody is going with you, Frank, if only to run back to tell us how much trouble you're in. He held up his hands in resignation. All right, all right. Somebody's going with me. But I'm still hoping to get this settled this afternoon so I can get on the road in the morning. Amber looked at Sadie. Can we get the list ready by then? Well, nobody's going to be going anywhere today, between the weather and the boogeymen. If we got going on it, we could probably get it done by dinner time. Amber saw Tanith trying to make sense of the conversation. We send a list to town with Frank. He gets what we need beyond the staples and brings them back to us. Frank grinned. It's something of a challenge finding this stuff, but it livens things up when I go shopping for fabric with the ladies. Tanith admired his good humor over what must be, at times, a very trying experience for him. His face turned serious after the general laughter died down. This is the last run I'll be making a fourth spring, so I'll be needing to get enough to see us through the winter. Lucky it's a big wagon, Thomas grinned at the older man. Frank laughed. Too right. This time we'll be hauling back almost as much as we're hauling in. Tanith looked startled. Really? Frank shook his head. No, not really, Mom. I'm exaggerating a bit. Amber looked up from her mending. Not by much, he's not. We'll need extra grain for the animals and nearly a ton weight of flour. Flour, beans, tea, anything we don't grow here or make, I'll need to bring it back. Frank looked at Tanith. If you've got needs, Mom. She looked uncertain. Well, I'm going to be spending the winter here. I'll need some supplies, but I don't know if I have enough to pay for them all at once. Amber and Sadie looked up. Are you, Mom? Are you going to spend the winter with us? Even Frank and Thomas looked encouragingly at her. Well, I'd feel funny leaving you all just now with the trouble and all. She looked at the tea in her mug. But I was planning on getting my winter supplies and such when I got to Overton. Amber and Sadie shared a glance and nodded. You'll need some warmer clothes, Mom. Yes, and some oatmeal? Still cut oats for my morning meal and tea? I'm beginning to run a bit low. I can't be mooching off the neighbors all the time. Her voice carried a note of uncertainty. I don't like living on charity. Amber smiled at her encouragingly. Mom, you don't ever think that here. She gathered the gazes of Frank, Thomas, and Sadie before looking back at her warmly. Welcoming, but soberly serious. We know what you've done for us already. You've paid your way for this winter, so don't you be worrying about mooching off the neighbors. Tanith was touched in a way she hadn't felt in many a winter. She'd always paid her way in hard coin and sometimes harder labor. She wasn't a young woman herself, but the teachers she'd studied with were older still. Many of them lived alone and were happy for a bit of company and an extra pair of relatively younger hands to help out in the cold and dark of the winter. Most of them lived simply. Tanith earned her coin by selling her herbs and poultices and was in the habit of contributing to the general larder wherever she stayed for extended periods. For the first time in a very long time, she was being welcomed as a member of a family. She blinked back the moisture that threatened her composure and sipped her tea while she caught her breath. Thank you. Frank spoke up after clearing his throat. You just get whatever you need on the list, Mom. Tea, oatmeal, fabric, thread, needles, whatever you need. He nodded encouragingly. I'll see to it you'll have it when I get back from Overton. Two different children started squabbling and pushing, and Amber clapped her hands sharply to get their attention. You two little critters behave, or I'll make you go fight outside. After the requisite round of But Ma and He Was, everybody settled down again. Frank and Thomas pulled on their outer clothes and headed for the door. We'll just take a swing around, see if there's anything happening out there. Thomas pecked his wife on the cheek. She nodded and pecked him back. You watch yourself, Thomas Hawthorne. She said it softly, and there was a hint of real worry in it. He smiled and nodded before following Frank out the door. 
The morning spun to a finish after a fashion, and even the children adapted to the enforced curtailment of activity. Lunch was bread and cheese that was melted over the fire. Playing with the fire gave even the youngest a chance to cook her own lunch and occupied them for nearly an hour. With full bellies warmed by the fire and just slightly bored from having been cooped up all day, the children curled up in piles on the corners and fell asleep. Even Tanith felt the pull of slumber as she sat on her bedroll and partook very sparingly of the general activity in the hut. She sat back out of the purposeful way of the two younger women who worked together to bake bread and keep the stew from burning on. The feeling of warmth and comfort conspired to find her nodding and napping, leaning back against the wall of the hut with nothing particular to do. Every so often she'd wake to find Amber or Sadie smiling in her direction. After the third time she gave up and stood. Amber and Sadie both looked at her sudden movement. Is everything all right, Mom? Yes, I'm fine. But if I sit here any longer, I'm going to be napping with the children. How can I help? The two younger women looked at each other. What's wrong with napping with the children? Amber's clear smile made Tanith smile back. Not a thing, but there's work to do, and I'm not some grandmother to tuck in a corner and nap the day away. How can I help? Amber looked around the hearth. Well, the bread's baking, dinner's cooking. I've finished the mending, and there's no sense to wash clothes today. She looked pointedly at the door. Sadie sat up straight. We should be working on that list for Frank. He'll not want to wait for it, and I did say we'd have it for him tonight. She looked at Tanith. Can you write, Mum? Could you help us with making the list? She blinked at them. Why, yes, of course. That sounds very good. Just show me what to do. Sadie looked at Amber. I left it at the house. I'll just pop over and pick it up. Amber looked shocked. You'll do no such thing without somebody to go with you. It's just next door, Amber. I'll be but a minute. Amber was adamant, so Tanith grabbed her hat and a cloak. I'll go with her. It'll be fine. The two women stepped out the back door and into a damp mist. Too light to be rain, too wet to be fog and crossed a few steps to Sadie's house. Inside, Sadie found the rolled-up list and a small pot of ink and a pen with a copper nib. She held up the pen for Tanith to see. We used to use charcoal, but three winters back, Frank sweated all over the list and the charcoal ran. You had to guess what it said. She laughed. He brought us back proper pens, and Mother Alternate made us some ink. How'd he do on the guessing? Well, let's just say we ate a lot of gingerbread that winter. And nobody got a new gingham dress. Tanith laughed. Well, gingham dresses aren't exactly warm in winter. Sadie grinned back. True enough, and the gingerbread was tasty. They scampered back to the Mapletons without incident and settled into working up the list for Frank. After an hour of careful thought and even more careful calculations, they finished the list, and Tanith earned new respect for the resourceful pair. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.